The local government news roundup is proudly supported by Davidson. For 30 years, Davidson has been strengthening the local government sector by identifying and providing the people, expertise and experience that local government needs to enhance its capability, productivity and performance. Davidson is nationally recognised for its executive recruitment services and over the past four years has built a business advisory practice rapidly evolving into one of the nation's foremost and trusted local government business consultancy firms. The Davidson methodology and approach is simple. Thinking beyond now and aiming to be a valued partner with your local government, not just for the immediate project, but for the next 30 years. Speak to Justin Hanney or Seamus Scanlon to find out more or head to davidsonwp.com.au. Davidson, your future, your partner. Chris Eddy here from the Local Government News Roundup with a new episode of Roundup Unfiltered, our periodic interview specials where we take a deep dive into issues of importance to the local government sector. Today, a new report from the Grattan Institute looking at the state of local roads across the country has sounded alarm bells this week, suggesting that the situation will only get worse without a significant injection of new funding. And the problem is being exacerbated with each extreme weather event that is experienced. The report is called Potholes and Pitfalls, How to Fix Local Roads. And it's written by Natasha Bradshaw, Dominic Jones and Marion Terrell, who joins me now. Marion, welcome to the Local Government News Roundup. You've done this very interesting report around how local roads are managed by councils across Australia. The first question is, why have you done this piece of research? It started with uh, last year, actually, um, when I spoke at the ALGA National Roads and Transport Congress in Hobart, and I'd been asked to talk about the topic of from mega projects to maintenance, and I've done a lot of work on mega projects, but um, in researching for that speech, I became very interested and realised what an under-researched area local government and local roads are, and so um, and I talked to a lot of interesting people at that event. And I came away thinking, oh, we've got to, we've got to do an in-depth report on this. So that's, we spent most of, my team and I spent most of the year on this report. And this is the culmination of that work. So there's 537, I think, is the number, councils across Australia. There's no one size fits all, even as you go from state to state, let alone council to council. Did you have a sense of the scope of the task that you were taking on here? Yeah, I was a bit nervous. I've got to be honest with you, Chris. Um, one of the difficulties and one of the reasons why I think that this is an under-researched area is that it's quite difficult. There's no clean data. You've got to get it from here, get it from there, put it together. A lot of the data is very poor quality. So we've done some, I think, some quite interesting work to try to mitigate that. But I do understand why uh, it's a bit of a daunting task for many people to tackle. So the, the headline finding here is much more investment is needed if councils and communities are going to keep on top of the local road maintenance task. Can you try and put that into context for us? How much money, how much uh, of an investment do we actually need? Yeah, there's just not enough money in the system. And um, we've done some uh, estimates of this and we have come up 
with uh, the figure of at least a billion dollars per year is needed on maintenance. So, so that's the, that is an important headline finding. And the way that we came up with that number, just to give you a bit of a sense of, of what it's made of, is um, that we use spatial data to model the cost that each council would need to spend just to stop their network from deteriorating. And we compared that with what they're actually spending. So that's the $1 billion underspend. It's not about improving roads, it's just about keeping them at the state that they're already in. Now, the other thing that's really key, and I'm sure your listeners will, will be uh, very well aware of this, but the underspend is much higher in regional and remote areas. So regional areas are underspending by more than 40%, and for remote areas, it's more than 75%, whereas in metro areas, it's a you know very modest, more like 10%. Which is interesting in and of itself, because regional and rurals in particular have far vaster road networks and uh, asset bases to manage, don't they? So based on these figures, they're just falling further and further behind. That's right. Um, so the typical uh, thing in, is that a, a regional or remote council's got a smaller population, smaller rates base, and it's got a lot more road to manage. And and we, um, we had a look at um, the, the question of where this money should come from because um, a lot of people might say, well, the councils can just raise their rates. In fact, it's not as simple as that. Um, a significant cause for this underspend is that some councils can't raise more revenue themselves to combat this, these pressures. Part of it is because you do have state-imposed restrictions on revenue raising, um, the most obvious example being rate capping in New South Wales and Victoria, but there are other, many other examples um, and, and uh, cost shifting and so forth. But even without these restrictions, a lot of remote and regional councils would struggle to increase their revenue. And, and we, so we've done some analysis that shows that regional and remote councils already charge much higher rates and fees per person than metro councils, despite the fact that their populations on average have lower incomes. So there, there's just this limited scope to, to get more out of that source. I think there's a special thing about roads, though, and that is that roads are a network. And so any given bridge or stretch of road is important to the locality that it's in, but it's also important beyond that locality. Um, for example, if you've got a key freight route and one bridge or one component of it that, that is locally managed, um, is not up to scratch. It compromises the whole route. And for that reason, higher levels of government do have an interest in local roads working properly, um, which is beyond the responsibility or the interest necessarily, or the very direct interest of the residents and ratepayers of that local government area. Yeah. So you're suggesting it's the federal government that needs to pick up the investment here? Yes, we have. We thought long and hard about kind of where this funding should come from because originally um, we had intended to come up with um, a revenue neutral proposal. In other words, no extra money from anyone. And um, but quite quickly, what what I realised is that regional and remote councils are basically in an impossible position. Um, so there is this underspend, and there, there's just a um, a lack of scope to for them to raise revenue. So the Commonwealth Government um, is where we landed, partly because of this spillover effect that the benefits of roads and bridges extends um, to the network as a whole. 
And there's a secondary argument, I think, which is that states themselves are very reliant on the federal government for some of their funding, what's known technically as vertical fiscal imbalance. And that um, and, and so there's sort of a, a precarity, if you like, about expecting states and, and state governments to fund this shortfall, um, which is not the case for the Commonwealth government. So those are the arguments why we ended up landing on the idea that the Commonwealth has an interest. And also because the Commonwealth um, is responsible for the rules of the system as a whole and things like a national road hierarchy um, and, and associated data collection um, is really makes more sense at the national level, even though some of the methods of asset management make more sense at the state level because they're in state legislation. You've looked as, as part of this data gathering at how the Roads to Recovery program works. Is it a, is, it is a case of that being topped up with more money or is, uh, is a new funding uh, stream required here in your view? The, um, we were more um, inclined to propose topping up. So we suggested uh, that the, the core funding to local governments be increased by a $600 million increase in the financial assistance grants, which of course is untied funding, and a $400 million annual increase in roads to recovery. And that both of those should be indexed in a different way. At the moment, they're indexed to CPI and population, but uh, the problem with that is that um, the what local governments actually spend their money on, the costs of that have increased more quickly than CPI. And so that partly accounts for why Commonwealth funding has been lagging behind over the past 10 years. It just The indexation is just not up to scratch. Well, and, but, and in fact, with, with the FAGs, uh, they were capped for a time, weren't they? There was no indexation being applied. So we were, in fact, getting further and further behind. That's right. There was a three-year period, and and once the indexation resumed, there was no catch-up. Yeah. So it just started from the new lower base. Yeah. So so they. I think I think it is fair to say that the Commonwealth funding has just not kept up with costs over the past decade, or or a little bit over a decade. Another interesting thing, and I'm I'm keen to understand how you went about gathering this data. But another interesting finding is that. A lot of councils, and I'm assuming it's uh, the smaller rurals, maybe some some regionals, don't actually have a good handle on the asset base that they've got to manage. Yeah, one thing that we did was we ran a survey of road managers in councils, and it was really um, it was fantastic. We had good response rate, and we got a lot more uh, depth of understanding from the responses that people gave. Um, but some of the, the findings are pretty concerning. So, um, for example, a quarter of councils don't know how many bridges they've got. And when you look at remote councils, it's getting closer to half. Um, and in, certainly with more detailed information, um, that's even more scarce. So only 15% of councils have got accurate data on the traffic flows on their roads and only, only just over a third know the load capacity of their bridges. So the, the, the baseline of information that councils are working with, and as you say, it is particularly remote and rural councils um, that are, are, are suffering from this, but they, there really is a, um, a very... The baseline of information is very poor at the moment. Marion, I know you've spoken to a couple of 
conferences by this time, uh, peak bodies, the MAV, LG, New South Wales. I'm imagining that council people will be hearing this message that you're delivering and saying, we already know this. Uh, you know, you're telling us something that we're acutely aware of. How helpful do you think this is going to be or how would you like to see councils use this information? Yeah, it has been great. For example, when I spoke to the Municipal Association of Victoria, um, one mayor uh, stood up and said, you haven't told us anything that we don't know, but we've never seen it quite documented like this. Right. So so what I hope we're able to do is to, um, it is difficult to document this stuff and it's taken us the best part of a year to do it. So I understand why it hasn't really been done in this form before, but we hope that we do give councils um, a more solid information base and that and the local government associations in particular a more solid information base. We are talking to the federal and state governments about this as well, um, particularly the federal government because we do see that they've got an important role to play here. So we hope to, um, I, I hope that this is making a constructive contribution by put, putting more information in the public domain that, that is um, consistent with what people experience but goes beyond the anecdotal. So at the time of recording this, we're starting to see some numbers out of the federal government about its infrastructure review of major projects around the country. And some numbers are starting to be bandied around about the shortfall and the, the impact of cost of living and uh, construction sector increases, etc. Timing-wise, for this message to, to get some sort of a result from the federal government, it seems to be a bit of a... Uh, a reach, would you think, with all of those major projects as well causing uh, concerns? Well, um, I think it is very timely myself, actually. So the Commonwealth um, is likely to announce in its mid-year update in the second week of December um, some either cuts or uh, longer timeframes for major projects. And they've signalled that, that they've found already a $33 billion um, overspend in the $120 billion pipeline. Mm. My comment about this is that the a billion dollars sounds like a lot, and for local government it is a lot because they're spending about $5 billion on roads um, each year. But if you're the federal government, there's absolutely no shortage of money for major projects. So the federal government have committed for spending $120 billion over 10 years, and most of it is about like it's, it's kind of almost entirely about building new stuff mm. and a lot of it is about mega projects now um a couple of things uh, mega maintenance projects typically have better benefit to cost ratios than mega projects for example black spots require um that projects have got a benefit to cost ratio of two to one whereas some of the mega projects if you think of the westgate tunnel in melbourne or inland rail um, they had benefit-to-cost ratios of one-to-one. -one. In other words, for every dollar you spend, you only get a dollar of benefit, and that's before the costs went through the roof. Yeah. So, so there's a. I think this um, spending on maintenance is is actually very good value for money. Uh, one of the things that happens is governments commit to projects, so they they have funding programs, and we heard this in the survey that um, that road managers do apply for funding for new and upgraded roads um, because that's what's on offer and the you know people's communities um, expect them to apply for the funding that's on offer but of course only a small fraction of the whole of life costs are the construction costs so so it is brewing a problem for later 
So the, the, the problem is, uh, I think that the, uh, the transport infrastructure spend is sort of misaligned, basically, and it underdoes maintenance and it overdoes mega projects, which is kind of where this whole project began. So in a nutshell, I think the amount of money that we're proposing from the federal government is a small fraction of what it would typically spend in a given year. They'll, they'll usually spend sort of seven or eight billion on transport infrastructure. So it, it's, it's not that much to them, but to local government um, and, and remote and rural councils in particular, it is a lot of money. Yes. Historically, though, it's not been politically sexy to to promise to fix stuff we've already got, to play catch up. Uh, and that's before we even start to talk about the growth areas and the infrastructure challenges that they have. Yes. But one thing that I've noticed um, in talking to people about this report is that because we've had three wet years and there's been a lot of quite devastating flooding, as well as bushfires in many parts of the country, uh, roads in the country, in particular local roads, are in a pretty terrible state of disrepair and they're quite dangerous and people are quite up in arms about it. So I think the environment's changed and people can see that what we're doing, what we've been doing up to date is no longer good enough. And, and I'd add to that um, what many of your listeners would be well aware of, but that um, if you intervene at the right time, it does cost you less then if you leave it for a road to deteriorate and you might need to do a total rebuild or a much more substantial intervention down the track. So it's a false economy really to not do the maintenance when the maintenance needs to be done. Makes perfect sense. And I think for most of our listeners, uh, we're preaching to the converted there. So I was going to ask you about the impact of those floods, etc. So that's obviously been taken into account when you're talking about uh, what's needed here. A couple of other things that you've noted that I wouldn't mind just exploring with you briefly. One is around the red tape, and I think some of this is related to roads to recovery. Some of those extra things that councils are required to do as a result of receiving the funding, but they're actually a pull on councils already limited resources. You've had something to say about that? Yeah, look, there's a balance really, isn't there? It's important um, that taxpayer money is spent in a responsible way and acquitted properly, and I would never suggest anything different to that. But I think um, the conditions attached to tied grants are often over the top. Um, So in in particular, um, well, I would say uh, that, um, for example, you get, um, I don't have the detail on me, but there's sort of three particular things that, that I would observe about tied grants. Uh, firstly, that often the timeframes are quite short, so like six months for roads to recovery, for example. And and the difficulty with that is that um, now is a particularly expensive time to build. We hear that all the time because um, there's cost escalation and there are labour shortages and the mega projects are sucking the oxygen out of the market. So if a council has to uh, complete a project in a short time frame, it's quite likely that they'll end up spending more than they really need to if they could time it optimally. Secondly, um, I think sometimes the the way that grants are given can be... We we heard in the survey um, competitive grants, for example, if you're a small council uh, applying for a competitive grant or needing to have a full business case or those kinds of things, um, if you... um, don't really rate your chances too highly. It's not prudent for you to invest um, your resources in applying for that. 
But if you think about kind of the, the goals of the program, it's sort of um, you, you don't really want all the money to be going to the better resource councils. That's kind of um, you'll get more bang for your buck if you if you do project if you fund projects that wouldn't otherwise happen. So that's the second thing. And thirdly, um, grant funding does tend to favour new construction. And um, you know, I talked to you before about how uh, construction is all very well, but it does bring a maintenance liability with it, which is not factored into the funding. So councils are sort of um, caught between a rock and a hard place as to whether they they do um, take this opportunity for funding, but then sort of worry down the track about how they're going to maintain it. So I've noticed uh, in relation to the federal government's major projects review, there's already some dialogue happening about, you know, a state like Queensland saying we need more attention than New South Wales and Victoria because they've had the lion's share over time. How are you going to respond to states like New South Wales and Victoria who you recommend um, get less of the pie because other areas are potentially being left behind when they have the growth uh, to, to manage? Um, over time, Queensland has done well out of federal infrastructure funding, as has New South Wales. And um, on, a, on a number of measures, Victoria has done less well. But it's um, but I, I guess I, I, that those analyses are uh, averaging over a number of years because in any given year, infrastructure is lumpy and it's it's a little bit difficult to tell. And I think it's also difficult to say, well, what would you expect it to be? So I've looked at it compared to things like population and population growth and sort of how urbanised it is and so forth. So um, it is difficult. Queensland um, generally does very well, unfortunately, out of um, natural disaster recovery funding. Um, so, th so these things, um, I think the states do... Um, engage in a bit of uh, theatrics about um, who's getting darted on what. Um, but with this particular focus of, of an, the need for an, a funding uplift for local road maintenance, the states that don't do as well are the ones that have got more remote councils. And that's because they have big road lengths um, and the um, the way the formula works um, for the local roads component does favour the uh, you do better out of it if you've got more urban councils metro councils in your state. We've talked about how you'd like uh, councils to perhaps see use and um, take this information forward. What do you hope or expect the federal government might say in response to this? Well, I hope that they will um, perhaps... Uh, there's a couple of things I'd like the federal government to do. So to increase the core funding for local governments through the financial assistance grants and roads to recovery, I'd like to see them establish a, a fund of $200 million a year to assess and upgrade local roads identified as key freight routes. Um, in, in, and in exchange for that, I think councils should provide permit access to compliant heavy vehicles as of right. So that would be um, kind of a saving for truck operators and for local councils. So that would be just a productivity improvement. Um, I'd like to see them revisit the formula for allocating the financial assistance grants. Um, and we've got some specific 
proposals for how that should happen. But in essence, to um, to have to allocate grants within and between states, according to not just between states, but also at the level of within states, on the principle that every council should have the capacity to provide um, an average level of service to the community to reduce the minimum grant to 10% um, of an equal per capita share of the financial assistance grants pool. I know that'll be controversial, but um, it, it, it is good for all the councils to be in the net, but 30% seems arbitrary and quite high. Um, and um, to, to combine the local roads component with the general component of financial assistance grant. And so, so basically to overhaul the, the way it provides funding to local government. Um, and, and then I think there's there's been some work begun on the national road hierarchy and the minimum service level standards for roads, um, but to also um, assist with the collection of essential data items associated with that road hierarchy so that councils um, can be compared across the country and to Im improve their ability to learn from one another. Um, so th those are, the, I'd like to see quite a lot of action really from the yes. federal government in this realm. Well, fingers crossed it does have uh, that sort of uh, response. Uh, perhaps just a question or two about you, Marion. How did you become involved in this this space of research? Uh, um, I've been working at the Grattan Institute for eight and a half years. Um, so I came and set up the transport program and covered a whole lot of different issues in that time. So a lot on infrastructure investment, but very much at the mega project end of the spectrum. And I've been um, interested in sort of tax related questions um, on transport and cities. Um, and um, more recently, I've done work on um, vehicle emissions and um, fuel taxes, that kind of thing. So it's, it's a, a very interesting area, but I, I must say I've always sort of uh, shied away a little bit from local government because it, it's a very complex sector. Um, it's very varied across the country and um, and it's, yeah, it's difficult because of this lack of data. So, in fact, some of our recommendations would go some way to uh, improving that mm. um, and, and perhaps open up the sector to more, um, you know, different voices analysing different aspects of it. So that, that's another thing I hope to get out of this. What about electric vehicle take-up and infrastructure there? Have you yet looked at local government's role in that perhaps? I have written a report on light vehicle, um, sort of basically on um, electric vehicles um, and looked at the different... Um, so I published that in 2021. So since that time, um, the the take-up of electric vehicles has really shot up. But um, in that report, we recommended fuel efficiency standards. Um, we have also had a, a bit of a steely-eyed look at government incentives for charging infrastructure and that kind of thing. And we're pretty um, disinclined to recommend that governments throw a lot of public money at it. I think one way to think about this is that um, there's already quite a lot of subsidies for buying an electric vehicle. And unsurprisingly, the people who buy them tend to be um, better off um, mm. because of that purchase price. But they're, they're cheap to run. And I, I think if you're a council, it's very unclear to me that it makes sense to use ratepayer money from your kind of lower income ratepayers to put in um, charging infrastructure for 
what are your probably your higher income rate payers. So the, the, I think that this looks to me like one where the market um, is more is likely is already stepping in, um, but the councils should be pretty wary about thinking about kind of um, the the composition of their populations. That's really interesting and uh, perhaps a topic for another day for uh, for more of a deep dive. I'd be very happy to. <laughs> Congratulations to you and the team for a year or so of work that's gone into that and I do hope uh, even just some of those recommendations get taken up. It'd be nice to see them all uh, adopted. Thank you, Marion. Thanks very much, Chris. I've been speaking with Marion Terrell, who, along with Natasha Bradshaw and Dominic Jones, has written the new Grattan Institute report called Potholes and Pitfalls, How to Fix Local Roads. You can find that easily by Googling that title, and there's been quite a bit of media coverage on that report's release already this week. That's been a special edition of the Roundup from our Roundup Unfiltered series and it's been available exclusively to Roundup subscribers for a limited time before going on wide release. There's another Roundup Unfiltered coming for you very soon where I talk to Brian Hood, the Mayor of Hepburn Shire in Victoria, about how he took on ChatGPT this year. Hear the full story on Roundup Unfiltered very soon. And make sure you don't miss our regular episodes of the Local Government News Roundup for the latest of what's happening around the local government sector across Australia and beyond. The Local Government News Roundup is recorded in the city of Greater Geelong, Victoria, on the land of the Wadawurrung people of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, thanks for listening and bye for now. The Local Government News Roundup is brought to you by the Victorian Local Governance Association. As Victorian councils go to elections later this year, the VLGA is ready to support communities and councils in good governance. A series of workshops has been designed to increase understanding of the local government sector, the work of councils and the role of a councillor. Registrations are being taken now for workshops in May on standing for local government and local women leading change. And Member councils should look out for the VLGA's 2024 Local Government Election Pre-Candidate Prospectus, available soon. Find out more about how the VLGA can support your council and community during this important time in the local government election cycle. Visit vlga.org.au.